Our passage today is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting the new book, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things later yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. You know, it's okay to laugh in church a little bit. Oh, it's, it's okay. That's a funny movie. You know, I was thinking of titling this sermon either Groundhog Day or Endgame, and I chose Groundhog Day because I'm waiting for Endgame to come out on VHS. So, um, <laughs> uh, that's right. VHS, VHS. I, I, I go way back. Um, well, uh, we're beginning a brand new series. And the book is Ecclesiastes. And, you know, as we're reading the passage, um, there's not really a a way of giving us a little pep in the step after reading that. In in fact, you're going to read the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes and think, man, like, is is this guy, he needs some antidepressants. Like, something's going on in this guy where we've got to get him a a little joy in his life. And... um, there's a scene in the movie Groundhog Day where uh, Phil Connors, played by Bill Murray, is before these two local friends that he just made, made friends with. Actually, he knew them for a while, but they just met him. And they go to a bowling alley together, and they're at a bar, and they're all plastered. And Bill asks them the question, what would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was the same and nothing you did really mattered? And one of his buddies stares into a beer mug and he says, yep, that about sums it up for me. (laughs) And then later on, Phil realizes, man, I'm just continuing this day in and day out. And so what if life had no consequences? How would I then live that life? And then he tries to live that life and he doesn't find satisfaction. And then he asks the question, Man, if I have to live this day over and over and over again, it's despairing, it's depressing. And so he finds himself taking his his own life only to wake up at 6 a.m. the same morning on Groundhog Day. And he does it over and over and over again. And then he finds this love attraction with this woman who he works with. And then he seeks to woo her over so that she would love him. And as he does that, she, he falls in love with her. And he says, I don't know what will happen tomorrow at the end of the night. He says, all I know is I'm happy right now. 
And, and I think that's the, the, the kind of the cry of humanity's heart. I, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but am I happy right now? But we don't really realize that happiness is not just found in one day. It's found in an accumulation of days. Happiness is not just found in one week or one month. It's found in the faithfulness of life. But we also see how fleeting that is. Or in the words of the preacher here, how vain that is. The monotony of daily living. And so this book is uh, what, what is called the wisdom literature. If you go into about the middle of your Bible, you'll see there's three books that compose of some of the wisdom literature that was written by a man named King Solomon. And as you read that, you see that there's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And the preacher is called, in the Hebrew language, Koaleth. Koaleth was a title given to someone who spoke to a gathered assembly. It was a preacher. He spoke to a gathered group of people. And he gave his wisdom to that gathered group of people. And here you have a man, the son of David, King Solomon, giving his wisdom to the gathered people of Israel that they might find meaning and significance while pointing out that you will not find meaning and significance in it. And he's got something to say. This is a man that we want to listen to. Because, as I said, he is the king of Israel. He's the son of King David. Now, if you were to ask um, uh, a, a devout Jew even today, who is the greatest king this world had ever seen? Bar none, they would tell you, King David. King David. This was the prime rule of Israel, the people of God. They were at their height and their highest that had ever been seen as a nation or the people of God. And King David led them there and he was known as a man after God's own heart. And he was the son of King David who was married to Bathsheba. Now a little bit of background story on that situation is that King David who ruled all of Israel his men were at battle and David was back at the palace while his men were fighting a war. And as David was uh, one day on the rooftop, he was overlooking his kingdom and he saw from the rooftop of another house a woman who was bathing. And he found this woman to be attractive and he said, I must have that woman. And so they, that woman was brought to him. He stayed with that woman and then they were found themselves pregnant with a baby. And David thought to himself, how, how, how can this happen? And so he sought to cover it up. And so his, uh, her husband, Uriah, was one of his generals, was on the front lines of the battlefield. And David called him back home for a furlough and said, you know, why don't you go spend some time with your wife? You need a little break. And Uriah says to David, I can't do it. My men are fighting a battle right now. I cannot leave them. I cannot, I, I cannot stay in my house with my wife while my men are fighting for our country and our king. And so David saw his loyalty and he knew it was a liability. 
And so he gave him a note to give to his commander. And as he gave it to his commander, Uriah was sent to the front lines. And the other troops that were with him were commanded to fall back. And Uriah's life was taken by David's murder. And this was Solomon's dad. And later on, Solomon's, uh, later on, David's son, David and Bathsheba's son was killed. Or not, he, he died. And is a stillborn. As a way of punishment, uh, discipline, for them to realize the consequences of their sin against a holy and righteous God. And then in Psalm 53, you see David's cry that this sin was a sin against God, not only against Uriah, but against God and God alone. And the reason why we say that David is a king after God's own heart and he's a murderer is because David was a man who walked in repentance and not in rebellion when his sin was made known to him. And so Solomon is the second son, the firstborn of King David through Bathsheba. And he became the king of all of Israel. And he's a man that inherited a kingdom in power, a kingdom in wealth, a kingdom in prosperity. And God showed up to Solomon in a dream one night. And he said to Solomon, ask what I shall give you. If you could ask God for anything, what would you ask for God? If, you could, if, you could, if God came to you and said, what would you like? What would you ask for? Well, David, with the rule of Israel, he said, give me wisdom and knowledge to govern your people with justice and righteousness. That was his prayer. Not for wealth, not for power, not for notoriety, not for fame, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern your people with equity, righteousness, and judgment. And so King Solomon was granted that prayer. And he's the wisest man that has ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. One author says he's history's wisest fool. <laughs> because Solomon later sought wealth, sought prosperity and fame and fortune outside of God. And many would say that Solomon is writing the book of Ecclesiastes as like the lost younger brother, the prodigal son who's now come home. And he's sharing with you his experiences because he's a man that has sought to find meaning and significance and purpose in life. And he's had every opportunity and resource and power to do so. He's like the Pope, Hugh Hefner, and Donald Trump combined, right? <laughs> he could do whatever he wants, when he wants, and he says, it's all vanity. Vanity of vanities. Meaningless. And so we see that there's a problem. And the book is really good at diagnosing this problem. And the problem is this word vanity, or as it is said, spoken in the Greek, hevel. Say that with me. Hevel. Let's try it one more time. Michael showed us how to do this real good. One, two, three. Hevel. Good. Hevel. It means, it means, it's like smoke. You, you try to grab it and it just goes right through your fingers. It, 
it looks like it's there, but it's now you see it and now you don't. In some states outside of Florida, when it's really cold and you take a breath, air, air in and out, you could see your breath and it's a mist. It, 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 it's there for a moment and then it's gone. You could try that here about three days of the year. And it's a vapor's breath. And so what, what that word hevel is meant to describe, one translation says meaningless. It, it doesn't entirely translate it correct, correctly when it says meaningless. No, there's meaning to it. It's just fleeting. Think about this, about how many billions and billions of people have walked the planet. And now you and I are one. We're, we're kind of like a love bug in the world, aren't we? We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. Breathe in, breathe out. That's all you get. That's all you get. That's the the vain nature of our lives. And then we're on this search. We're on this search for significance and meaning and purpose. And we all want it. And, And I tell you, friends, that's a gift from God. It's something that God put in us. But when we use it to live under the sun, outside of or apart from God's plan and purposes, then it leads to a life in vain. And this is what Hevel is. Hevel is this meaningless life that lacks significance because under the sun we are thinking that we're going to find purpose, hope, and meaning only to maybe find it. But like that smoke in the air, try to grab onto it and it just slips right through our fingers. It's not really there. It's a shadow that lacks substance. And the author does a really good job. The preacher does a really good job to highlight that under the sun, life is vanity. An author and pastor by the name of Philip Ryken says, Anyone who has ever felt that life is not worth living for, that nothing ever turns out the way one hopes or wants, and that not even God can make a difference, knows exactly what the preacher was talking about. Now, now if I asked us, I'm not going to ask us to do this now, but if I asked us to raise a hand after identifying with that, I think we'd all raise our hand because we've all been through something like that. And I also don't want this to elude us. Maybe we're here now and we feel that way. Maybe we feel that life is so redundant. Maybe we feel the monotony of the day by day grind. Maybe marriage feels like, how can there be hope for my marriage? And that my marriage is lacking purpose and meaning right now. Maybe in parenting, it's like, man, I got to get up every day and take care of them. And I get nothing in return. I mean, seriously, I I didn't sign up for that. I thought they would be cute their whole lives. And now they're just a terror. Doesn't doesn't work that way. Or or maybe it's the job. At, At one point, you get that job. You find that career. And you find significance and meaning and purpose. And then a month later, it's... Why am I in the boss's office and we're talking about this right now? Is this what I signed up for? And then you think that if I just had a new marriage, I just had a new family, or I just had a new job, I just had a new roommate, I just had a new church, I just had a new this or new that, what you're trying to grab on is that smoke. You're just trying to grab it and catch it and see if it will stay there. And really it won't because that's life under the sun. That's the horizontal nature of life where you look to your left and your right and you look to the created things rather than the creator to find hope, meaning and purpose. You're living the horizontal life instead of looking vertically 
to God, what you should be looking towards for those things around you. And so, what is our response when life ends, when life comes that way? How do we deal with it? How do we live with it? When we're trying to live on a horizontal plane, we're pretending. The answer is we're pretending. And that's what Solomon essentially sums up. I've pretended really well my whole life. I've pretended really well to have the power and significance. I've played the part of God and I've failed. I've played the part not only as God's created, but trying to be the creator, trying to be the one who made things happen, who does it according to my will and my way. And what does he say at the end of the day? He says it's like chasing after the wind. It's pretending. He says this, Why, What does man gain by all their toil, all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain? That, that word gain is really important because we live in a world where we want to highlight gains, hashtag, with a Z on the end. We, we want to we live in the world of ROI, return on investment. If I could just give a little bit and get a lot back, then I'm doing really good. And we don't really count the cost. Yeah, we count the profits, but we don't count the cost. Maybe we count the cost for ourselves, but we don't count the cost of the world around us to get there or what we're suffering for later on for that return on investment to get those gains because we're living under the sun. Uh, uh, a year ago, we had a neighborhood yard sale in, in my neighborhood. And um, my kids, they love doing a lemonade stand. They, they just, they like interacting with the neighbors. They like fighting and trying to see who's going to get the ice and who's going to get the lemonade and who's going to hand it to them and who's going to take the money. Um, they, they love that. And I, I don't like the fighting, but you know, they do it. They're 10 and 8, twins of 10. You know, if you've got twins that are 10, they're just going to fight, right? And so, uh, actually, they don't fight as much as Lily and Camden. All right, well, that's another sermon for another day. Um, we need to get them in here and, you know, anyway, no, that'd not be good. So we're doing this lemonade stand, and um, and it's the whole neighborhood's out, and we decide the night before we're going to add cupcakes to it. So lemonade and cupcakes, doesn't that sound great? Uh, we should have that after church next week together. Um, and so we've got lemonade and cupcakes and the kids have this little tip jar there and they are just working the crowd. Adeline's holding the sign, lemonade for your donation. And she's doing the thing and, and they are, they are the, the highlight of the day. Carrie and I, we spend about four hours, five hours trying to get all our yard sale garbage together and we think we're underpricing it. You know, it's like I paid $50 for this and I'm trying to sell it for a buck and that's still too much for some people. I don't get it. And so um, we make like 50 bucks in what was probably about seven or eight hours worth of work. So split that up between us. That's not a good return on investment. But the kids, man, they're making 75 bucks off of lemonade and cupcakes and they've jacked up the price significantly. Actually, there's no price. Just throw whatever you wanted in the jar and they're putting five, $10 in the jar and the kids just make out like bandits. And I'm getting a little jealous here, right? 
I want to change this story. So yesterday we had another community yard sale at at my in-laws house um, in Claremont. And they've got a big community. And uh, we're thinking that this is going to be a large yard sale. So we put it in the same preparation. And then I go to Publix and I buy the cupcake stuff. And I'm adding it up. 12 bucks what we're spending on this thing. And so I tell the kids, listen, kids, we're going to do this a little bit different. We're going to have a lesson in entrepreneurial leadership here. All right. So $12 for the lemonade and uh, for the cupcakes. And that's what you owe me after this is all said and done. So we go to um, and and set up at the yard sale and uh, uh, nobody was out for the yard sale. Uh, We made like six bucks, but the kids made like 14 Um, and you know, after the end of it, I'm going to the kids and I'm like, all right, pay up, pay up. And they said, well, what do you owe? We owe you. And I take out the cash and I start counting it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. And I take out the coins and I pull out four quarters and then there's a little bit of change in the bucket left and I put it in my pocket and the look of terror on their face. (laughs) No, (laughs) no. And and then grandpa says, I need $5 for the lot charge. All right. I'm charging rent. And then I say, you got to tithe off of that. And by the end of the day, they're each owing us $2. I I forgave the debt. I forgave the debt. They each got their money. Right. We're leaving the tithe up to the Lord. And so, (laughs) but but, but isn't that the way life is? You, you set up these expectations. You set up this, this idea that, that you have to make a return on your investment. And if you don't make a return on your investment, then it's fruitless and faithless and not worth it. And so we end up living life on a plane that says, I just need a return. I just need a return. I just need a return. I need to make something for my toil, my labor. And you know what Solomon says about that? He says, under the sun, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth will remain forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. And hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams, all streams run into the sea. But the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. You you see that there's this redundancy of life. And what Solomon is saying is that our pretense, our pretending of life, like we're in control, like we're the ones that are actually going to gain something, like we're the ones that are making a massive difference in this world. You, out of how many billion people have walked the planet and how much change has actually happened over time, that's really what Solomon is saying here. You are going to go. You're going to come and go, and this world is going to be here. That sun is going to keep rising in the east and go down in the west. He's saying that the wind is going to continue to move along its circuits, and every few years a hurricane's going to come here, or a hurricane's going to go there, or there's going to be tornadoes, and there's these weather patterns. And he's saying that, that Niagara Falls, all the billions 
hundreds of gallons of water that are rushing down it and all the water and all the world that is rushing down the rivers are all going to find its way into the ocean and the ocean is going to be the same level it was last year, the year before, the last hundred years and there's going to be no movement in all and as a woman named Ann Lott says, she says, 100 years from now, guess what? All new people. (laughs) All new people. Everybody's new. This is like, Pastor Ryan, this is depressing. Are we going to be in this for 12 weeks for crying out loud? I don't know if I want to come back here again. (laughs) I want us to wake up to reality. Reality under the sun is that you've got one life to live. Don't live it for you. Do you hear what I say? Don't live it for you. Live it for God. Live it for God. He's the CEO. He's the one in charge. He's the one that upholds the universe by the word of his power. The reason why the rivers are flowing their courses is because he made it that way. The reason why the mountains bow down to him is because he made him for that. The reason why the rocks will cry out is because he made them for that. Is because all creation sings of his praise and glory. And if you're trying to find meaning on the, on the horizontal plane, you aren't going to find it. You're going to find it vertically. Now, can we be honest with ourselves? There's nobody in the room here that could say, I've been doing that really good my whole life. I've been looking to God the way I need to. There's nobody in the room here who's done that. We've all looked for significance and meaning in the created versus the creator. It's called idolatry. We've worshipped something that was made by God and we have looked for that to give us hope and purpose and value when God says, you got to look above the sun. You can't live under the sun. You've got to look above the sun. And then the preacher says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. Solomon, by the way, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. If you're going to have a meal with one of them, you know, every year, (laughs) it's going to take you every day to have a meal with one of your wife or concubine every day day. And and you say, man, that's not me. Well, well, there's a porn problem in the world today. And you could easily, with a click of your button, find a thousand images to skim through and find yourself in the same vanity and meaningless of life and emptiness the next day. And you're living Groundhog Day over and over and over again. And that guilt and that condemnation comes into you. What do you do with that? How do you build on that? Do you just keep looking? Do you think if I just keep looking, I'm going to find an answer? That's what Solomon's saying. It's not coming. I've tried it. And he's got a lot more money and power and wealth than you did and do. He's tried it. And he's saying, take, take a lesson from me. It's not going to work. What ear, the ear being satisfied with what it hears. There's this covetousness that fills our ears. And we think that we need more. We need more. And we need more. One wealthy person was asked the question, how much is enough? I just need one more dollar. <laughs> And he just keeps chasing that one more dollar until he finds significance and satisfaction. And it doesn't come under 
the son because this heart is an idol factory. This heart just keeps making idols until it finds significance. And then it finds a little glimmer of hope in one only to find later on that it was filthy and it did not bring them what they hoped for. And then it's thrown out and then another one is sought for. And God says, when's that going to change? When's that going to change? For you and for me, when's that going to change? Because we all need help with that. Solomon says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. You, you said that quite a bit, Ryan. <laughs> you, you said that quite a bit. Well, come on, didn't we land on the moon? When they land on the moon, they had to look back at earth. There's nothing for the moon. There's nothing for man on the moon. What God gave us is here. And we keep looking it for something new. And all of human history has made the same mistake in saying that we're going to achieve greatness. And the whole Tower of Babel tells about it. That as we seek it, we grow further and further away from God. And the only thing that comes is death, death and destruction. And we find ourselves on the cul-de-sac of insanity going around and around and around and around again thinking that we're going to find our way home only to find that we are insane doing the same thing, thinking that there's going to be different results. We got to learn. We have to learn. A friend of mine from Facebook, she, I think, kind of captures some of our hearts well of the excitement and joy of dreams, but also the way we can be crushed when we don't get those dreams our way. She says, days like today, I would almost rather give up on my dreams. Chasing them is exhausting. That's the weariness that Solomon says. Days like days are exhausting. I, I would, I, I'd just almost rather give up. Ecclesiastes 10 and 11, there is a, there, is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new. It is already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Think about all the history books. Think about the 0.02% of people that are remembered from human history. We think that somehow this is going to be different. Jonathan Aiken is a pastor and he wrote this. He says, the American dream is a lie and a failure. We live in a culture with more money, more entertainment, more pleasurable experiences, more recreation, and more stuff than any previous generation could ever have dreamed. And pain pills and antidepressants fly over the counters of our pharmacies. It's a miserable world where one of the funniest and richest men the world has ever seen, Robin Williams, kills himself in despair. Think, when I say that, I say that groaning. Groaning. Yesterday there was a, another shooting at a synagogue in California. All creation groans. The bombers that go into churches in Sri Lanka on Resurrection Sunday. I'm groaning. And then I'm left stuck here with what Solomon has to say. And if I don't read between the lines, there's no hope. But Solomon doesn't finish with verses 1 through 11. There is a purpose by which he says these things. 
There is a reason why he wants to draw us to the vain reality of life under the sun. Because he wants us to put our head above the sun and see that there is more significance and meaning than we think. If you go to the end of the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. There is a pleasurable experience, and it's not one that's fleeting. It's one that's fulfilling, living the purpose that God had created you in advance for. As Paul says in Ecclesiastes, he created you for good works so that, listen to me, so that you would walk in them. There is a joy that we experience in walking with the Lord. There is a joy when we get our head out of the horizontal, pretending that God doesn't exist and we are God. But when we get our head out of that hole and we look above, then we see that there is a vertical dimension to this world. That there is a God who created this world and that he wants a relationship with me. That he wants to know me. That he wants to see my prosperity. That he wants to see me live with hope and a future. Because the Bible talks about that. That does bring us a supernatural joy. That can lead to change in the world around us. That can lead to meaning, significance. But it's not when we're living for ourselves. The purpose is that we would stop living for ourselves and the whole duty of man would be to fear God and to keep his commandments. But there's still a problem in the purpose and that's that we've not done that. You could change right now, but you've already wasted a whole lot of your life getting up to this point and you're not going to be able to keep it going for very long. I promise you that. There's only one person who's ever done it. And so when Solomon speaks of the vanity of life in this meaningless under the sun, he's pointing us to the Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who lived that Ecclesiastes 12, 13 perfectly, fear God and keep his commandments. He lived in a fear of the Lord. He wasn't going after gains or profit. He didn't have a place to lay his head at night. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man does not have a place to lay his head. He wasn't seeking himself. He was fulfilling the great commandment, love God and love others. And for the 33 years of his life, he walked and lived his life perfect in relation to God in perfect harmony and love. And you know what happened? We killed him for it. We killed him for it. That's the story of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Like King David, maybe I never murdered somebody, but I've certainly had murderous intent. Maybe I've never had an affair, but adultery has sprung up from my heart. From the overflow and abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. There's so much that we're guilty for. And so if we want to live out Ephesians 12, 13, we have to look to God and secondarily got to look to grace. We've got to look to grace. And the grace comes through God's son, 
Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives us these words in Mark 8:36. He says, "For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul?" <laughs> That's the words of Christ there. All the Bible, by the way, is the words of Christ. But man, when those words are in red letters, if you got a red letter Bible and he's saying it, it's like a highlight. He wants you to see the attention is on this. What does it gain for you to continue in this experiment of fulfillment only to find, like Solomon says, it's not worth even trying? And that's the world that we have to seek to escape from. And that's the world that God calls us not to escape out of, but to live in while we rely utterly and completely upon him. Because when we forfeit the prophets, what do we get? Our soul. Our soul. And what's eternal? Our soul. That's eternal. That's eternal. That's why Jesus says, don't lay your treasures up on earth where moss and Thieves break in and steal and then these treasures only deteriorate and decay. But lay them up in heaven where God is safeguarding them. And nothing, and nothing could snatch those treasures from the hands of God. Nothing. What is the treasure? Well, the treasure is you. The treasure is the people that are around you. The people who are made in the Imago Dei, the image of of God. The treasure is the person we prayed for earlier, Katie and her husband Kindle at the end of this day. The treasure are the kids that are in our kids ministry right now. The treasure are your loved ones. The treasure are the people who are going through problems that are just racking your mind. How can I live in such a way that causes them to realize that their soul's value is not in this world, but it's in another world? That's the treasure. And how do we forfeit the quote unquote prophets in order to get the gain. It doesn't really mean that your life drastically changes from here as far as the practical aspects of it. It means that your heart changes because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. You've got to take your soul and do some business with King Jesus and allow him to transform you from the inside out so God can use you right smack dab on the horizontal world that you live in to look vertically to the God who made you. Can I get an amen on that? Come on. This is good news. There's purpose, there's meaning, and there's hope in the worship of King Jesus. That you gain your soul. In any other way, any other way, says Solomon. Any other way, says Jesus, you lose. You lose. And I think the question that we're left with today is, do you believe that? Because tomorrow you're tempted to live that out. Heck, you're going to be tempted to live that out on the way home. Do you believe that you lose in trying to seek the world's economy of gain? Do you believe that? And are you sold out to the reality of God's economy that says what matters to him is me? Me and those he made. There's a guy named Count Zilzendorf. I don't know if I even said that right. He says, preach the gospel die and be forgotten. Can can we be okay with that? Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. That's the only reason why we know of Count Dizendorf is because he said that. (laughs) Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Do you know who the famous one is? Jesus. 
He's the famous one. He is the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And as Michael read it earlier today, we see it in the book of Revelation. And oh, this is a wonderful sight. Because oh, this is the sight that we are going to all be a part of in that beautiful wedding feast of the bride and the bridegroom. The lamb who was slain, who purchased the bride over to God so that he could say to her, you are not your own, oh beautiful church. You are bought with a price. And he reads, and John records for us these words as he saw it, this vision Coming to him, he says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written with on written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open her scroll or to look into it. Why? That's because no one's feared the Lord and kept the commandments of God. And no one in heaven and earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep. (laughs) We'd be weeping too if we saw that vision and no one could open it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... (laughs) The true son of David, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll. (laughs) He upholds the universe by his power, so couldn't he do it? Of course he could. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll, open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the church says together, Amen. So when you take that broken body, the communion, representing Christ's broken body, you remember that the whole duty of man, your duty, has been fulfilled not by you, but by him who was slain for you. He's not dead in the grave. 
We just talked about that last Sunday. And we need the monotony of it to hear it over and over again because it's not monotony. It's the greatest news ever. He conquered the grave. And he stood before that throne and he took the, the scroll and he opened his seals. And he gave us everlasting life because he is the only one worthy forever and ever. So take communion knowing that fear God, keep his commandments. That's still a duty of yours, but it's been fulfilled in God's perfect son and seek the grace of his righteousness, which is added unto you. I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion. After I pray, you could stand, file down the aisles. There'll be someone serving you communion. If you believe in Jesus as your forgiver, leader, and Lord, and you would say, this is true, join us. Join us in that communion. And then also, if uh, today you would have questions of what it means to be a Christ follower, then let us answer those questions at the connect table. If there's a prayer, we could pray for you. We'd like to pray for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your glorious work for us on the cross. Thank you, God, that you are the wisdom of God. You're the knowledge of God. And that God, while Solomon says that there's this meanlessness under the sun, God, we know that your word through Solomon also points us to a significance outside of it, above it, looking towards God the Son, who has conquered death and given us freedom and forgiveness. In Christ's name, the church says, amen.